Good evening, everybody. I'm Barbara Peters from The Poison Pen, and I am, unfortunately, doing this on my phone because my laptop is rebooting. And further, I have just been to the dentist all day, so my mouth is all swollen and I can hardly talk. Aside from that, I'm really delighted <laughs> to welcome M.M. DeLuca, uh, Marjorie, with her book, The Night Side. So, Marjorie, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for doing this. I hope you're feeling good enough to, to well enough to, to do this whole thing. Oh, no, I'm fine. Um, it's just, you know, how Novocaine wipes out your mouth and then you can't actually do anything. Um, but I don't know anyway, how that feels. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. But anyway, uh, so Marjorie is actually, I'm going to call you Marjorie, not M.M., but yeah. that's what you do. Um, is actually Canadian and lives, well, anyway, she's a resident in Canada and I believe Saskatchewan. Is that right? No, actually, I live in Manitoba. Canada. Oh, the heart, the heart of Canada. Okay, um, it's right in the center, and uh, it's it's a prairie province, and we're basically about the city I live in, which is Winnipeg, is about a hundred miles north of the border, so uh, of the U.S. border. So I'm not originally from Canada. I I was born in England. So right. If I had bothered to look at your biography while I was so unnerved <laughs> about my laptop not rebooting, um, you actually, um, you spent your childhood in Durham, and Durham is one of my totally favorite cities in England. I have been oh, up on the roof of Durham Cathedral several times. Oh, and um, there. Yeah, it's so beautiful up there. Love the river. And um, at least when I was there, which was probably mostly in the 80s and 90s, yeah. there was a particularly good restaurant in the crypt. Yeah. It's an even more beautiful place now. They've really, um, I guess, cleaned a lot of parts of it up. And it's such a such a magical place. I, I get back there anytime I can. I just love it. Um, and I think when I lived there when I was a child, I don't think I really appreciated it until I was older and went back and just thought, wow, this was an incredible place to grow up. It's so steeped in history. And oh, yeah. it's not always on the tourist routes. Um, most people that go on a tour will stop at York Cathedral and they'll bypass Durham, which maybe is a good thing for the people living there. But <laughs> Well, so it might be, but um, I have to say, I mean, I'm a history geek, so I can say that Durham is actually the Palatinate Cathedral in England and therefore the choir uh, and other clergy get to wear purple robes which I think yes. is the only one. And it was built by a man named Flambard who was um, came over with William I, William the Conqueror. Mm -hmm. And um, he, was a, he was an interesting character, maybe a sort of early version of um, the people that Hilary Mantel writes about in you know, yes. the time of Henry VIII, wasn't he? Yes, it's amazing. There's the tomb of the Venerable Bede there and uh, the tomb of St. Cuthbert. So it has big ties to early christianity very very interesting place and really beautiful and because we mentioned saint cuthbert it has serious literary ties as well um yes. you know it, they you know the scriptorium thing and all but saint cuthbert and the venerable Bede were actually um major figures in yeah. medieval literature anyway yes. we digressed but so let me <laughs> ask you um after you um graduated or studied at the University of London and Goldsmiths College, you moved to Winnipeg. Was that um, a personal decision or a professional one? Um, you know, it was, a, it was a personal decision. I'd 
graduated with a degree in psychology and uh, I had ideas of being a psychologist, then that didn't sort of pan out. So I trained as a teacher and then my sister came over to Canada and she got married and I came to be a bridesmaid at her wedding. And I came in the summer and it was so beautiful here, the lakes, uh, the wide open spaces. I loved it. And I decided to come back and get a job here and maybe stay for a while. But it ended up lasting a lot longer than I thought. And I never left the place. Uh, and at first, I, I always wanted to go back to England. But then I gradually got used to the open spaces. And Winnipeg is kind of a unique city uh, that people don't know a lot about. Used, it's, it used to be called the Chicago of the North. Yeah, and uh, has some beautiful old heritage buildings and a really thriving arts community. So it's an interesting city. I think that Canada has a very interesting literary community, but you may or may not know that the Canadian government protects it with a tariff on books. The only, as far as I know, government in the world that actually charges an import tax. So we don't see as many Canadian authors. I can't ship books to you because it's a... Uh, it's a trying to remember seventeen dollar and some cent surcharge per book to send a book into Canada. Really? I yeah, um, I find I, that most people aren't aware of this, hmm. and because we have a very large Canadian reader population for the hmm. Outlander books, because you know Nova Scotia in particular, and we are Diana Gabaldon's home bookstore, so hmm. we send books to Canada all the time, and we're really shocked at you know people are paying. $22.34 or something for a book just in shipping. Yeah. Wow. Yes, that's true. Yes. Um, and the Canadian literary scene is, you know, when I first started out uh, writing, I did try to send my work to Canadian publishers and really had no luck. And that's why most of my published books have been with UK or US publishers. I've had a much better reception from them. And most of my books sell in the UK and the US. I am not surprised to hear that. I'd, I'd really like, um, I'm, I bring this up every time I talk to a Canadian author because at some point, because I really find that it, I think it's a big handicap for all of you that mm -hmm. there is this tax because the US is, is such a big book market. I'm sort mm -hmm. of hoping to gather up a whole group of Canadian authors. I've talked to Sherry Lapina and Linwood yes. Barkley and Vicki Delaney and um, Jim Shockey, who's just become um, a published author and whatever, and Diana. And I'm thinking at some point we might get a pressure group and get this rescinded because what I think is nobody knows about it. And they passed this so long ago and everybody is unaware of it. And the only reason we are is because we are shipping books regularly to Canada. Yes, and I didn't know about that either. Well, so that's, that's new to me. Right. Well, we'll be in touch. But anyway, you're right. Your publisher for this book is, in fact, Severn House, which is a London-based company. Yeah. Um, and it's called The Night Side. I love this tag. 20 years of secrets, one deadly truth. Ooh. And very dramatic <laughs> cover, too. I don't know how well you can see it, since I yes. can barely see myself on my phone. <laughs> green right. is my favorite color. Dark green. I love it. <laughs> it's so really I did like the cover. So your earlier novels are called Lila, The Savage Instinct, The Secret Sister, and The Perfect Family Man. Mm. So what brought you into writing, and particularly what brought you into writing crime? 
Well, um, I sort of play, dabbled off and on with uh, writing short stories um, right from an early age, really, but never really got serious until my kids had grown up. And uh, I took a course at the local university with Carol Shields. I don't know if you, Carol Shields. The, work, the year that she won the Pulitzer Prize, I was accepted into her advanced creative writing class. And it was amazing. The first day, it was like a rock star coming into the room. And she's this very small, she was, unfortunately, she passed away some years ago. Um, this very small lady, very, uh, but with a wicked sense of humor. And it was an amazing class. And she became our mentor, our friend. It was an amazing experience. And that's when I became more serious about writing. Um, then I was a teacher for a long time and being a teacher doesn't allow much headspace for writing. Being a teacher takes up so much of your brain that you just, you can't concentrate as much as you would like to on writing a book. Um, then in, uh, about five years before I was eligible to retire for early retirement, um, I got the opportunity to, uh, I guess, leave teaching and go and work with my brother, who's um, a music producer. He wanted help writing some scripts for musicals and um, TV, possible TV shows. And I went and worked with him and I was back and forth to London and Los Angeles. It was fascinating, it was thrilling. Um, and while I was doing that, I was able to write. And the first books I wrote were young adult sci-fi, which is totally unrelated to uh, what I'm doing now. Um, I tried to sell those to publishers, no luck. So I actually self-published those and they were quite popular. Um, then I wrote um, a sort of epic saga based on my mother's experiences as uh, the daughter of a coal miner. Um, and then I wrote this book, which became The Savage Instinct. And so my first love was really historical suspense because I love, like you, I love history. I'm, I love research. And uh, so I wrote The Savage Instinct, which is based on, a, it's set against the backdrop of the real life arrest and trial of Marianne Cotton, who was, uh, a notorious serial poisoner in the 1870s in Durham. Um, then after that, um, I did find a publisher and uh, then uh, on an instinct, I joined this thing called Pitmad. It's a pitching contest that used to be on Twitter. And I had an idea for another story. I pitched it and somehow I got picked up by another editor and publisher in England, and they gave me a two book contract. And that became The Secret Sister and The Perfect Family Man. And I realized I liked writing um, suspense stories. I I'm not sure whether you'd call them crime. They're more psychological suspense. Um, and my stories sort of are about family relationships, about uh, they're generally sort of full of twists and turns. And then uh, I was able to get an agent 
for a, a long time I worked without an agent, but then I got an agent um, from uh, Trident Media Associates, uh, Mark Gottlieb, who's been wonderful, and he sold um, the night side to Seven House, and that's how I got to this point. That's where you are. Well, you know what? Yeah. Crime, crime fiction is a very, very broad umbrella, Audrey. Yeah. Yes. And um, there are many, you know, sort of sub genres, subcategories yeah. within it. I try to avoid using them um, because they're really best employed, in my view, for online book selling, um, where, you know, you have electronic tags. And, you know, if you're a cozy reader, mm. you get, and if you're, a suspense reader, but I think that, you know, think about Mary Roberts Reinhardt or some of these earlier, you know, kind of golden age writers, they wrote suspense novels. So the whole driving force in a Mary Roberts Reinhardt book was don't go into the attic, don't go okay. into the attic. And yes. they did it anyway, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. That's right. Um, so, you know, I'm also a strong believer that not all mystery or crime fiction has to be a murder mystery. There are That's all right. kinds of other crimes, you know. I mean, yeah. um, you know, Trollope wrote the, you know, the Eustace Diamonds. Dorothy Sayers wrote a number of short stories that involved, um, one of them I've always remembered was um, an attempted murder by depriving a woman of her thyroid. You know, so oh. they great. I know. Um, and I think we've kind of, you know, the big jolt comes from murder. And so that seems to be intrinsic. But I keep looking for books that are not necessarily uh, murder mysteries, but rather embrace this larger world of crime. So I think, you know, if you're writing historical suspense, that's great. Yeah, I was a huge fan of uh, Daphne du Maurier when I was a teenager. I devoured Rebecca and Jamaica Inn. I loved all of that um, mystery and dark, almost gothic. I kind of tend towards the gothic sometimes. A lot of people call The Savage Instinct a gothic mystery. And this one too, The Night Side has sort of gothic elements. Um, so, yeah. The but gothic, yeah, it's making a strong comeback. You know, within, yeah. within crime fiction, things rise and fall according to readers' tastes and the gothic has made um, a big comeback. And during COVID, when people were locked down, there was a huge surge in reading classics. I mean, you know, people had time for war and peace and whatever. But additionally, um, the British Library and the Library of Congress uh, are republishing Golden Age Mysteries. And um, it's it's a very big selling section in our store where people are kind of going back to, to basics. And again, many of them are not murder mysteries. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was a devotee of Mary Stewart and Victoria Holt. And you know, yes, those yes, were, I did read yeah. those. I liked right. uh, the Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. All of those Frankenstein, yep. um, all of those. Right, and so I find that I call all of that crime. Um, yeah. And you know, let I mean, science fiction. There's actually a lot of sci-fi noir, as they currently call it, where you know you're taking a mystery structure, but you're doing it in a world-building sci-fi kind of a thing. Um, horror is making a big comeback at the moment. Oh, which, yeah, more extreme than Gothic, but you know, that sort of, so it's fun. I've been doing this for 34 years and it's really intriguing to see how stuff yeah. goes down. But anyway, relevant to our discussion about um, Canada and uh, the book market, 
Ruby Carlson, who is the focal point here of this book, you actually have her starting in Stony Brook, Montana, not in Winnipeg, Canada. Yeah, my last book I set in Winnipeg. Uh, I, the last book, The Perfect Family Man, I set here. But I wanted somewhere different. I, I tend to set my books in different places, places that I've been to or places that have a sort of emotional impact on me. And we, uh, when my kids were younger, we traveled a lot through the States. We would go on road trips and we drove to Los Angeles many times using different routes, but we went through Montana many times. And I just loved the uh, wild sort of openness of the countryside there. Um, Manitoba, where I live, is very, uh, is, is similar in that it's not heavily populated, but it's very flat. Montana, there are different sort of areas, mountainous areas, hilly areas, prairie areas. Um, so I, I was just really struck by the countryside there, spent many, many times we passed through there. And the last time we were in that region, we were in southern Saskatchewan, which borders Montana. And it's such a wild and sort of remote uh, hilly area. It just really struck me. Um, and I have to feel an emotional connection to a setting in order for it to work for me. And it did. And I made up Stony Brook, Montana. Uh, it's a small town um, that's not unlike small towns here in Manitoba. So, yeah, it's a made up place. And that's where she starts out her life. And uh, that's where all the bad things happen. Well, small towns really make, I think, um, for many stories, really make the best settings because, you know, there's a, a small cast, there are secrets that drill back into the past. Everybody mm -hmm. knows everybody's business. Yeah. Um, people are connected. I mean, it's an entirely different thing to have, you know, somebody murdered on the streets of Chicago is an entirely different um, kind of a book. Um, so Ruby um, vows never to return from Stony Brook. She uh, runs away. And um, she has a, a very manipulative, in fact, according to this, narcissistic mother. So, yes. you know, did you, when you were teaching, did you run across this kind of dynamic where you had a student whose mother was impossible? Um, you know, thinking back, uh, occasionally I met very manipulative parents. I'm not sure I would just say mothers. Um, often later in my career, parents would really get upset if you um, gave failing grades or um, told the parents that their son or daughter was plagiarizing something, some parents would get really upset and say, you're ruining my kid's life. Why are you doing this? Um, the majority were really understanding. So I, I did meet some very protective parents, but um, not really as manipulative as Ida. I'm not really quite sure where she came from. Um, and I didn't have, my mother wasn't like that. The only similarity that um, my mother had uh, had to Ida is that I think the character of Ida, um, she's a very intelligent woman, a woman who had big dreams, but unfortunately at the time, she was never able to realize them because the opportunities weren't there. So 
she, that that was my mother's experience she she was an intelligent woman she wanted to be a nurse but she came from a poor family so she couldn't go and train she had to go and work in domestic service um so Ida is like that but I think uh the reason that she kind of turns to um, psychic scamming is that it's a way for her to gain some power. Mm -hmm. And that's true of um, women in the past. In the Victorian era, that was the way that women were able to find some agency. That's why there were so many female psychics and mediums. It was the only way they could exert some power or get some notoriety. Um, so that's always fascinated me that feeling of getting a thrill out of manipulating people. Well, you know, Victorian women also had another weapon, which was illness. I mean, some of it was really genuine, but I think um, oftentimes, you know, you can cause a household to revolve around you if you yes. are, you know, perceived as an invalid and, you know, uh, you're not expected to do things that you don't want to do. You get and so it was ideal. The other thing that happened a lot, because I've read tons of Victorian literature, yeah. is Victorians were actually serious drug addicts, many of them. And oh, yes. Was, you know, they didn't, have, they didn't have less benign painkillers. And so they were very big on um, opium, morphine, and all. They even administered it to children, you know, to calm yes. them down. So, you know, you have De Quincey and his memoirs of an opium eater, all of that. Oh, but I, yes. I do think that women often had, you know, particularly if you, you know, if you had like 12 kids, um, and, you know, many of them had way too many children or had been pregnant way too many times. You would just feel rotten of uh, much of it. And so it's not surprising that you would choose to, you know, kind of take the edge off. Um, so, I mean, I think the Victorian era is a fascinating one to Yes. Then, but where? What? What time? What? What year are we in here with Ruby and Ida? We're not in Victorian times. No, we're in. Uh, we're going back and forth between the 1980s to the year 2000. So we're basically the book is structured back and forth. Um, we start with Ruby in the present, and uh, we go back and forth to learn about her um, childhood experience and why what she's running away from, why she's so alienated from her mother. Um, so we're going through the 80s and 90s, and we're also in the present day. So when she comes back, 20 years, or, or however many years it is since she ran away. 20 from, years, yeah. Yeah, 20 years. Her mom is missing and, you know, yes. sort of presumed dead. But here's another red flag if you're reading a mystery, you know, and it says presumed dead. Uh, very often that means, no, not really, but where is she? Well, and also she's escaped. She's been arrested for her scamming activities and she's skipped bail. And then uh, she's not only skipped bail, but her clothes have been found on the shores of a lake. And so they presume that she's committed suicide. But right. Ruby, Ruby doesn't believe that she has. Ida is too vain to do something like that. Yes. Well, I mean, staging a suicide is another, you know, that's a prelude to all kinds of things. Insurance scam mm -hmm. stories or, yeah. you know, domestic stories or oh, yeah. you know, whatever. 
So, you know, that's the setup. This being a um, publication time program, we can't discuss any further about what actually happens here. No. But, so, but so Ruby, having made her escape from Stony Brook in her small town and her mother, now is back. We find, her out, we find out as we go through how she escaped and the circumstances around it. And it's very steeped in secrets and guilt and all of the above. <laughs> so when you're writing, you know, I mean, I, I believe, as has been, it's not original to me, but I do believe it, that the best mysteries are ones where you mourn the victim and you can empathize to some degree with the villain. I'm knocking out serial killers because I don't think, you know, one needs to empathize with them. But I do think, you know, that um, everybody's not always just one thing, except maybe serial killers. And therefore, you know, to find out more about Ida, um, however badly she behaves, you know, ideally, if you're writing her well, we do gain some sort of, you know, sympathy for her, understanding of her, even if we're not sympathetic. Do you find that's true? Did you have that in mind when yeah, you wrote her? Yeah, I, I did keep that in mind because um, I didn't want Ida to be just some kind of evil witch or something like that. She believes that she's doing um good in some, to some extent and i think that's true of some of people who get into this psychic scamming and there is a lot of it i did some research about it they rationalize the whole thing by saying well i'm helping people this is what they want from me i'm only giving them what they're asking for um so uh I think I, Ida really believes that. And uh, she also believes that she's giving giving Ruby a start in life, that she's giving her something that Ruby can be, use and become independent. She can sort of follow in her mother's footsteps and have some of her own sort of agency, her own independent um, livelihood. But this is not something that Ruby really wants. Um, I don't want to say too much more about that, but um, I, I did try to make uh, Ida, she has some good points about her. She's a very interesting character, I'd say. I think you're right. And, you know, I often think that, you know, people who form cults or, you know, many of these people that are pastors and, you know, sort of cult-like religious groups and all, I think they, part of that, it's, it's a lot of it's a scam. They always seem to have, you know, some kind of sexual stuff going on, but and then yeah. they get exposed. But I do wonder if part of the rationale for some of them is they're giving people what they want. They're staging, you know, a revival meeting with snakes, uh, and everybody comes and gets excited, and that you know, beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, I I've seen a, a documentary about that, and you know, there are just enough people out there who really want this, and. The person who engages in this kind of psychic scam is really perceptive about the kind of person that they're going to pick as a target. They look out for the lonely people, the grieving people, the needy people, the people with emotional troubles. They're really good at, at scoping those people out. And um, once they get a hold of them, then... You know, then they start to, in in the research I did, 
they start to make claims like, oh, well, you've got a negative energy about around you. I can remove that because and everything in your life will be okay. You'll be healthy. You'll be rich. You'll find the love of your life. All you have to do is I'm going to give you a free candle at first so you can burn it in your house. But afterwards, you're going to have to buy them from me. And then there's a basically an escalating uh, series of treatments and rituals and all kinds of things designed to take money out of the person's pocket. Well, avoiding politics, I will say that that dynamic is very much in play in the United States right now. Um, oh. <laughs> absolutely, yes, you know, and it, I find it completely fascinating that in the face of actual evidence, people still prefer to believe what they want to be true rather than what is oh. actually true. But that's all I'm saying. Um, yeah. Anyway, I know exactly um, what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you do. Um, so um, I was um, in Canada in September, and one of the things that I really treasured about um, our time there was how truly nice Canadians are, and not only nice but extraordinarily helpful. Uh, when yeah. we were staying at the Royal York in Toronto, we had a very early train to catch to go to Montreal and on to Quebec mm -hmm. City. And when the bellman came up, he picked up all our luggage and then he walked us out of the hotel and across the street to the train station and down to the train and, you know, put the bags on the train. And I thought, I haven't seen that. Um, and then yeah, our, it, it, our- Studies have shown that, that, that um, we are supposed to be very poli a polite uh, society of people. Absolutely, kind and helpful. I was also impressed with the drivers, you know, I mean, you can take your life in your hands stepping into city streets in Quebec. If you put a toe in the street, all the traffic came to a stop. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. You know, um, everywhere we went, people were, um, and I don't know that we were, we probably were, but I don't think we were necessarily obviously American. I mean, I'm not running around in white tennis shoes and, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but, I, you know, people were, were happy to be helpful happy to be of service, mm. happy that we're there. Um, and, you know, I love that attitude because there's so much anger floating around the United States right now. And it was a real relief to spend some time where basically people were kind and good intentioned and cheerful. Yeah, no, I, I, I really think that's true. <clears throat> it's funny you said about the driving because in England, and I've spent a lot of time in London, if you step out onto a road there, you're likely to get your toes run over. You take your life in your hands there. Um, I mean, the people in England are also very polite, but um, crossing a road there is really, really frightening. It's so, the traffic is so congested there. But here, and especially in Manitoba, um, because it's less densely populated, people are very friendly here. And when you come up to somebody and ask them directions, they don't, get all defensive or anything they're very helpful usually but we've traveled in the states a lot and we've found the same in all the places we've been to that we've found helpful people and we've enjoyed many holidays there in fact we were in phoenix in april, april golfing ah well <laughs> the perfect time to come here to golf um good yeah. for you yeah so I Thinking, Marjorie, I'm assuming that you're going to continue writing. Have you thought, are you going to continue to set books in the United States or Britain, or are you going to set a, try to set a book in Canada again? Um, 
I'm sure I will, but the books that I'm working on now, um, I actually haven't completed another historical one because um, I, I just love the Victorian era. I always sort of fall back to it. I um, have a book which isn't sold yet, but um, which is based on some research I did about the Victorian beauty business, which is really fascinating. It's called The Anomalist. And uh, when I read about some of the beauty practices of the Victorians, it's actually horrifying that they survived them, <laughs> painting your face with arsenic and all kinds of things. Well, um, that wasn't just Victorian. That was actually 18th century, too. Um, yes. That maquillage that people would put on. That's was right. On, and, you know, people didn't understand the effects of lead and other you know other kinds of things i mean look at the treatment for syphilis you know it was terrible yes, uh, yes. and you know so it was bound to kill you which would of course cure the syphilis um but you know medicine has made lots of progress but good for you i mean there's, there's a lot to excavate in the victorian yeah. age then uh in in complete contrast because i've actually always got one or two projects going um i'm writing a book about the music business because I've had some huh. um, quite a bit of um, experience being around the music business. And a long time ago when my father was, um, my parents lived in England, but they'd always come over here to visit. And at one point they thought they might come and live here. Um, and we went to look at some seniors homes. And when I was in there, I thought, wow, look forward maybe 20, 30 years, could I imagine Keith Richard in a senior's home? <laughs> and it gave me a great idea for a story about um, rock, rock musicians. Um, and, uh, you know, because there are a lot of rock musicians who are still performing mm -hmm. at the age of 80 plus. In fact, the Stones are doing another tour. They are, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, I think it's past this understanding how Keith Richards <laughs> is still actually alive, let alone yeah. performance. Wow. <laughs> yep, I agree. Well, good. I'm glad that you have so many projects going on. Let's call Jacob up and see if there are any comments or questions that he might have, because he's been looking at Facebook and YouTube as we talk. So, Jacob, I can't see you on my phone, so I'm sure you're there somewhere. All right. Yeah, we certainly do have some comments here. Um, so what genre of books do you enjoy reading? Uh, what are you currently reading? Asked Renee. Oh, um, I am reading, again, I've always got two books going that I'm reading. I'm reading, um, uh, what's the book? Oh, yeah, I'm reading... Shrines of Gaiety, that's right, by Kate Atkinson, mm -hmm. which is about a gang, uh, a sort of gang of, uh, I guess it's like a racketeering woman who ran um, sort of nightclubs in the 20s in London. I'm reading that. And then I just finished reading Yellow, um, Yellow Face by R.F. Quang, right. which was amazing. Such a good portrayal such a true portrayal of the publishing business. Just an amazing book and slyly funny in many ways. Um, so I just generally tend towards mysteries and historical. 
Um, do you have an author that has influenced you over the course of your writing career? Yeah, there are two authors that uh, I just really respect. Uh, the first would be Margaret Atwood, who is absolutely brilliant. Um, I I admire the way that she can hop from one genre to another. Um, she's gone from uh, contemporary novels to historical fiction with her book, Alias Grace. And then she's now into sci-fi um, and dystopian books. Um, so I, I really admire her. I, and I actually went to um, a reading of hers and she's one of the most witty people I've ever, ever seen and listened to. She's just brilliant. Um, the other person is Sarah Waters, a British novelist and her book, uh, The Little Stranger, I think is one of the most frightening books I've ever read. Um, just an amazing book. So she, those are two authors that have really influenced me. And finally, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, The Great Gatsby is one of my favorite novels, just the beauty of his language. Um, I used to use it a lot as a teacher with grade 12 students and they all loved it. Um, uh, so those are three people that I really admire. Um, there's another question here. Uh, was there any uh, particular uh, inspiration for the night side? Um, was there a true story that may be uh, inspired the story or was there something you read? Yeah, actually there was. There are two things that um, inspired me. The first, um, I'd always wanted to write something that was related to spiritualism because actually my grandmother on my father's side was a member of the spiritualist church um, in Durham. And my father always tells the story when he was a little boy, he would sit on the out, sort of periphery of this room and in the middle would be all these people, including my grandmother sitting around a table doing all this like table thumping and joining hands and spirit writing and speaking in tongues. And I always say to him, weren't you afraid? Like, didn't it frighten you? And he said, no, it didn't scare me at all. Um, so she believed that she had some kind of psychic powers. And then my mother actually claimed that the night my grandmother died, my mother was alone. And she said, there was a moment when she became very afraid. She felt there was somebody standing behind her. And my dad came in and my mom said, your mother's dead. And he said, I was going to tell you that. She just died. So I don't know. I'm a bit of a skeptic, but that's what they tell me. So that was a personal influence that inspired me. The other one was I was reading about um, people and a particular detective who made it his job to find and um, sort of root out these scammers. And one of the people that he um, discovered was using her teenage daughter to sort of lure in clients. And she'd get this daughter to do a sort of preliminary reading, but that she'd tell her to do it in a sort of faltering amateurish way. And then when when the person was getting frustrated the mother would swoop in and take over and uh just really um you know sort of hook this person in um so i kind of wondered 
was that girl, that teenage girl doing it willingly or was she being coerced into it? And what about her hopes or dreams? What happened to her? And I have read other situations like when I did some research where people actually used their daughters to kind of lure victims and promise to marry them and then get sort of in, get sort of their into their life and the mother would sort of start becoming indispensable and they would sort of find these lonely men and uh, basically uh, sort of find their way into their lives and uh, milk them of all the money they they had so those were things that inspired me and uh, I wanted to tell something from the point of view of a daughter who might be mixed up in that so yeah right I mean there was another question asking if you had any personal psychic experience or uh, know of anyone that, that has but yeah <laughs> I've been to, I went to a tarot card reader with my husband and the reader was more interested in my husband than me. She, she started reading my cards and then she looked at my husband and said, you've got the gift to my husband. Cause she turned this card over, said, look, the Knight of swords, you've got the gift. And I was kind of left in the dark. I was sort of relegated to the side while she basically read his cards. So I don't tend to get involved in it. I'm a bit skeptical, but then I'm also, one of the quotes from Hamlet that always stands out to me is when Hamlet says to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. I don't know whether we really know everything. So maybe. <laughs> um, there's a question here that asks, did Ruby and or Ida lead your writing at all? Sorry, can you? Um, Did Ruby and or Ida lead your writing at all? Read my writing or lead it? Lead. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm a person who does try to outline at first, but then it generally kind of gets looser as the book goes on. And of course, characters take over. And they 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 do lead you um, down paths that you don't really expect to go, but you have to allow that. I think you really do. Some people do have very rigid outlines and they stick to them just as if you're writing a screenplay, but I can't do that. Um, I am definitely driven by the characters and definitely Ruby um, led me because of course in this story, there's a love story too. Um, in many of my books, there are love stories, not all of them, but the one in this was a very deep sort of love that Ruby has with um, her childhood friend, and uh, that kind of, yes, that she led me through that, definitely. Okay, great, that's it for questions. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Marjorie. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Yes. Um, and congratulations on publishing The Night Side. And um, Liz Severn House, who asked us to, invited us, in fact, to spend some time with you. So thank you yes. very much, Severn it's House. It's coming out on Tuesday. So this is actually a pre-launch, so. Yes, yeah, indeed it is. <laughs> Sorry, I just have this boring teacup. 
whatever. Um, but anyway, um, happy holidays to all of you who are watching this. And um, when you come back to Phoenix to play golf again, be sure you look us up. I'm going to, definitely. Oh, that'll be great. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.